0: Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Alexis Goldsmith.
1: And I'm Mark Dunlake. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with the proposal by the Democrats in the Troy City Council to establish a housing task force. Then, Christoph de Maria, speaks about creating small acts of performance for peace Uh, we then hear about the push for universal school meals in new york Um, after that we get an overview of catholic charities of the diocese of albany and we end up with uh, part two of a conversation with rabbi uh, deborah gordon of barith shalom synagogue in troy about the challenges of being a rabbi in these times but first headlines
0: The Times Union reports that the city of Albany and Albany County each intend to chip in $100,000 to help methadone clinic Camino Nuevo buy the former United Way building off Washington Avenue extension. The city has been pushing to move the clinic off its current Central Avenue location.
1: With the shortage of workers still hampering the state's workforce, Governor Hochul is proposing to expand a temporary hiring program that removes civil service requirements. Union leaders support expanding the waiver to also include local governments. The problem of reduced workforce may continue to get worse as a quarter of the state's workforce will be eligible for retirement in the next five years.
0: The State Civil Service Commission is also looking to create, quote, transitional titles, end quote, in order to allow asylum seekers who have received federal work authorization to to work for the state. The state's actions come as federal lawmakers are attempting to negotiate a federal immigration deal.
1: Even though New York's prison population has nearly halved since 1999, and there is a staff insurance at the state's remaining facilities, Republican lawmakers are opposing the governor's proposal to eventually close five of the prisons, arguing that workers at the facilities need the jobs. Governor Mario Cuomo would often agree to open more prisons in upstate New York in exchange for getting Republican agreement on his other initiatives.
0: The governor has signed a law to expand the state's legal definition of rape to include various forms of nonconsensual sexual contact. The state's current limited definition was a factor in writer E. Jean Carroll's sexual abuse and defamation case against former President Donald Trump.
1: Valley Falls will hold a public hearing february fifteenth about redeveloping the burnt out Thompson Mill site as a waterfront park on the Hoosick River in the village, which is located in northern Rensselaer County. That's it for headlines. Up
0: first on tonight's show, Democrats on the Troy City Council are seeking to establish a community-based housing task force. My co-host Mark talks with City Council President Sue Steele and Council Member Erin Vera.
1: We are talking with uh, Sue Steele, president of the uh, Troy-Cindy Council, and Aaron Vera, who is a a member of the uh, Troy City Council. Uh, They represent the Democrats, which are minority on the uh, City Council in Troy at the moment. Um, But they have recently proposed a housing uh, task force uh, for the city uh, to deal with uh, what they call skyrocketing rents, uh, the aging housing stocks and uh, barriers to homeowners. Uh, And for my generation, those baby boomers trying to downsize to, you know, an apartment and not finding affordable rents. So what is uh, what are the Democrats on the City Council proposing with respect to housing?
2: Well, Mark, thanks for having us. Uh, first off, um, we feel that housing is a critical issue, uh, certainly not only for Troy, but for communities throughout our country. And we think it's uh, a good idea to get all of the players uh, around the table together and to put their collective minds to good use and come up with a strategic housing action plan that will act as a blueprint going forward to address many of the housing uh, issues that you you mentioned uh, earlier. Um, We really need to focus on these problems and come up with solutions.
1: Now, I notice it, uh, you make reference to wanting to sort of model this a bit after what city of Hudson has done. So what, what has Hudson done and, and what have been some of the outcomes you think would be, uh, helpful for Troy? Yeah,
3: so I think that, um, Hudson's plan, um, came away with some, some good recommendations. Some of those, you know, the city of Troy, um, has already addressed, um, such as including accessory dwelling units. In our latest zoning code revision, um, but you know they, they they go on to make recommendations relating to uh, code enforcement policy to. Um, educational opportunities for first time home buyers, um, some additional penalties for 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 landlords um, and streamlining the the uh, fine and in court process for for those items. Um, and, 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 and also some, some brand opportunities for the preservation of housing stock, um, all of which, you know, we could, we could see being recommendations for Troy's, um, housing action plan.
1: Now you make reference to the fact that rents in, uh, Troy, at least parts of Troy have been, uh, skyrocketing. What, what can the city do possibly to try to, uh, you know, make rents a little bit more reasonable or affordable?
2: Well, I think uh, initially we need more housing. Um, uh, The housing is at a premium at this point and they can uh, basically get away with, with charging those rents. Um, So I think that uh, we need to increase housing and we need to increase affordable housing. And that involves uh, bringing in the right developers, uh, the right funding packages and, um, and I think that's where the housing task force can be of a, a, a value in uh, in interesting those sorts of folks um, and encouraging that type of development.
1: Now, the Republicans, you know, led by the new Republican mayor, Carmelo Mantello, who actually used to hold your position, You know, so it's given a mixed response, I guess, on one hand saying, yes, we actually like the ideas that the uh, Democrats are talking about. But we're not sure how this doesn't just duplicate the uh, quality of life action task force that she has, I guess, put together. So where are things in terms of trying to figure out a way to move forward with uh, the Republican majority? Well, first of all,
2: let's let's clarify right from the outset. This is in no way duplicates the quality of life task force. That is a task force of internally of city departments that are uh, working in uh, concert to address quality of life issues. Um, Our housing task force is external. We're talking about bringing together the wonderful nonprofits that we have in the city, the, the landlords, tenants, Um, it's a much more broad based uh, coalition. Uh, It's a community driven task force, and it is focused entirely on housing. So I would want to just make make that clear from the outset. And I think part of the problem is they've been trying to divert attention away from our call to action uh, by saying that it duplicates. And
3: in in fact, it does not in any way. Um, Yeah, I think it's important to note that the the housing task force that we're proposing has a singular goal in mind, which is development of a strategic housing action plan. Um, That's similar to other committees that have been involved um, in Troy to develop our comprehensive plan, to develop um, our our new zoning code. Um, And so, you know, we see this task force existing um only only to develop that plan um and then that would give the city a a guiding document to to address these issues moving forward
1: now you mentioned the need for you know additional funding sources for affordable housing you know affordable housing was um last year what Uh, Governor Hochul made this her sort of signature issue, um, but failed to come to agreement with uh, state lawmakers, partly over some of the dispute about uh, overriding some of the zoning restrictions on, uh, I guess, adding on uh, additions to housing, particularly in in, in suburbs. You know, what are the opportunities with the state at this point to start kicking in more money for affordable housing? I
3: think the state has um, a few programs that they're uh, they're working on right now. Um, one of them is uh, an ADU program. It's a grant opportunity um, that would allow single-family homeowners in the city um, who, you know, meet a certain AMI threshold, um, would afford them approximately $130,000 to construct an ADU on their property. Um, I think grant opportunities like that are are fantastic. Um, And I think there's also uh, a number of other incentives that the state could look at to encourage affordable housing.
2: And I think that by bringing the the professionals in the field together um, in the format of a task force that will um, encourage the collective minds to uh, seek out those funding opportunities and uh, utilize connections within the development field. So I think um, it only enhances our opportunity for uh, development in the affordable housing field.
1: A few years ago, the city of Albany passed a, a good cause eviction law, partly to cap uh, rent increases, think around 5%, but also to give tenants a little bit more rights in terms of not being evicted, especially if landlords trying to you know to, to raise the rents to get new people in there. That's been so far overturned by the courts, but the court of appeals is not, um, You know, gave the final rule in state lawmakers are considering finally putting it at the state level. That was why the courts lower knocked it out because it said it needed state authorization. Have you looked at or considered something like a good cause eviction proposal for the city of Troy?
2: We have not, but I think um, it it would certainly be a question for the task force to discuss and consider. Um, It's as you mentioned, it's controversial. Um, and it would be uh, valuable to have all of the players uh, at the table to, to discuss and um, recommend if appropriate. Um, I think that this really gives an opportunity to look at the housing issue in totality um, and is a, would be a, a tremendous tool uh, going forward for the city.
1: So we only have about 45 seconds left. People want to find out more information about your proposal, weigh in on it. How can they do so? And also, do you deal with the issue of code enforcement at all in the last 30 seconds? Uh,
2: they can reach out to us. Our our uh, emails are on the city website under city council, and we'd be happy to uh, respond in kind.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking to uh, Sue Steele, president of the Troy City Council, and a City Councilmember uh, Aaron Vera, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk magazine. And just to clarify, those are both Democrats, uh, but the majority in the uh, city are, are Republicans. One thing I didn't mention was, you know, when Hochul, um was rebuffed in her efforts last year to promote more affordable housing, One of the things she is doing this year is actually looking to build housing on state-owned land to make that a simpler approach. And I'd be sort of curious to see whether the city of Troy either looks at building on publicly owned land or really try to expand um, the amount of public housing being built. But we'll be following up on this issue and hope to someday also get the mayor on to talk about the issue.
0: Thank you so much for your reporting, Mark. Up next, Christophe Di Maria, a local artist, has been using Instagram as a platform for small acts of performance in support of a ceasefire in Gaza. Sina Basila Hickey reached out to Christophe to understand the might of small acts in support of peace.
4: There are many ways to demonstrate for peace. Some acts may be grand with large audiences and flashy props, but just as important are these smaller acts that are intimate and humble. Christoph Di Maria, an artist, educator, theater maker, leaned into his skills and began a regular demonstration of peace on Instagram, speaking to a small audience. This began with reading names of people, mostly children, who've died in Gaza and evolved into reading passages from Jonathan Dyke's book Acting Out, Voices from the Theater in Palestine. Christoph, thank you for joining me to talk about the power of performance as an act for peace.
5: Good morning, Sina. Thank you for having me.
4: So why did you begin this series of video demonstrations?
5: Oh, I suppose it began simply because I met Jonathan Deitch, Um, you know, he was on a short tour of the continental U.S. and found himself in Troy. He lives in France with his wife and is active there um, after being active for, you know, over a decade in Palestine and Israel. So. Having the privilege to meet him and learn more about his book and the time that he spent there, as well as some of the people he's associated with, some members of our community, um, I was I was really taken by the everyday story of these interviews that was so interwoven with the narrative of resistance and how that was applied using theater as not only an act of resistance, but also just an act of empathy of of sharing their story and using it as a way to connect to other people who are struggling similarly. Um, In the age of post-COVID, which we're not really post at all, right? I mean, this is still a big deal for us here in 2024. So much of our media is consumed uh, through our phones and other screens. And while I am part of very large movements I helped organize the Interfaith Peace Walk that happened on New Year's Day here in Troy, I found that these more intimate sharings speak to a different part of a human being. Um, there's something that resonates with, you know, a tiny door in your heart that opens up and says, ah, 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 I know that feeling, or I've been there before, or I can I can really relate in some small way. And you can use that as a touchstone to connect to the much larger fabric of what is like coordinated and organized resistance. So, you know, I guess what what inspired me was to try to bridge the gap between what is someone's like personal relationship to this movement in their everyday life. And then what are these like massive um, societal shifts that we want to see and and how do we connect those and theater, theater really is that way, right? Because it requires an individual to participate, in a group that communicates a story and an idea that is much larger than themselves, and in the case of you know what I've been reading in this book, specifically with like the Palestinian people and all of their complexities as people in resistance, but also just as people as part of a global culture and a global context, um, which if you follow along, you can see.
4: The inclusion of reading from acting out voices from the theater in Palestine was only included a couple videos in. So it began with just taking a moment, a deep breath, and reading the names. So the way that you just answered, it sounded like it, it was the original intention. Did you always hope to build up to reading the book? Or did you just do something and figure it out as you were going along?
5: I mean, isn't that what we're all doing all the time? Right. Yes, you've actually... Thank you for clarifying that. No, it did not begin with the book, right? I spoke to specifically the book, but it it began with the reading of those names. And that honestly was like, this is the smallest act I can do. And this is the most consistent act I can do. I can sit down and I can read these names and give them their their space and time. Um, You know, I think about how many stories will never be told, and how many children will never grow up and, um, you know, will never experience joy. I mean, so many of these children weren't even born, okay? And um, I suppose it was the smallest act for me as a person, but it had enormous impact because I could keep reading for 40 years, it seems like, and these names would not stop. And they're not stopping now and and i suppose that was the that was the gesture there it was to somehow describe the mundanity of it while uh gesturing at the immensity of it while also realizing that like it's ongoing even though those lives have stopped the stopping of lives is not stopping
4: so in a performance like this a demonstration um does it begin as like an act of a moment for yourself and then it just you come to the realization that other people are affected in the same way so i guess the question is do you come at it thinking about the audience or do you come at it thinking about what will do for you
5: both i mean it's ritual so you know and theater is is often ritual so any ritual the participants have to come to it you know as themselves, in themselves. And so, yes, in a way I was doing it for me. It was a grieving process. It was a process of absorbing and reflecting the understanding of this loss of life. And I find that with others, it's so often that we feel we're alone in these kinds of feelings. And with mourning and grief, it often is very isolating. But so many people are experiencing the same thing. So when you perform the ritual, in my mind, that is also an invitation. It's an invitation to just listen, sure. But it was also an invitation to pick up lists of names yourself and begin reading or mourning and grieving and informing the world in your own way. Um, you know, so really it's it's both. But I do just start with myself and see what happens and then respond you know, to that almost like when one throws uh, a pebble into a pond, it's going to create ripples. But then I'm going to use those ripples as the design for how I throw the next pebble.
4: As somebody who does theater here in the Capital Region, what were some of the stories that really stuck stuck with you?
5: Oh, boy. Um, I suppose overarchingly, one thing that stuck with me is, right, this book was published in like 2021 several of the interviews took place um, from like 2010 11 you know right up through uh 2020 2021 um including some journal entries with some some theater makers that jonathan is in touch with that are ongoing um the importance of this is that it points out that while october 7th and the days following felt very new for us here in america just the same way that when, um, you know, Ukraine was first invaded by Russia, it felt very new. These things have been ongoing for a really long time. And so many of these theater makers talk about how they became active in 1987. Okay. The year I was born, I'm 36 now and began their prominence in 2005, you know, or um, have been going on for so long. And each of them mentioned the occupation as a consistent part of what surrounded them, the context of their work even if their plays were not specifically addressing the occupation, rehearsing and performing and, you know, doing workshops with children under the occupation had these enormous impacts. So first off, longstanding struggle and that the Palestinian people are not a monolith. And we tend to think about it in terms of, at least in this country, it would seem, Palestine over here, Israel over here, conflicting like this, but it's really not. There's so much more cultural exchange that has been happening for arguably, you know, hundreds if not much much more uh time that has passed. And so it's important to note that theater <laughs> is also that old and um it makes me question, you know, what what how how far back theater in Palestine has really gone. But in terms of this modern expression, We've, we just have so many, so many examples of how this is really just an example of their everyday life, right? Um, and theater in the United States isn't as indicative of that. It's very much more a specific story to tell. It's a performance that may be tied to entertainment or, you know, if it is a specific story that's being told in a specific place and time it kind of puts the audience in that place and time. But here in this book, I can open to any chapter and read about the work that they've been doing and say, ah, oh, this is applicable, you know, then and now.
1: So that was uh, Christoph uh, de Maria. Uh, I remember Christoph, uh, I think about two years ago, doing a performance art with a hazmat suit out in front of the state capitol uh, to uh, protest the uh, Norlight thing. Uh, and I know that a lot of people, maybe five, six weeks ago when we did a die-in out in front of um, Congressman Paul Tonko's office to support a ceasefire, uh, spend probably half an hour reading the names of all the people uh, that were killed. Uh, and, and at the Hunger Action Network, we used to do performance art every year, around the theme of um, no room at the end Um, the Jesus, you know, sort of biblical story. And I've seen quite a few people do that, more in memes in terms of uh, the response to the the Palestinian uh, situation at the present moment. But for those who are just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunley.
0: And I'm Alexis Goldsmith. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, WOOC LP 105.3 FM Troy, wooglp LP 92.7 FM Troy, wooslp LP 98.9 FM Schenectady and W O O A L 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York.
1: If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, a coworker, well, that's special to someone at the uh, bus stop. And you can f- find today's stories and more by visiting mediasanctuary.org.
0: For our next segment, Emily, Emily Ledyard of Feeding New York talks with Mark about the push for New York to provide free school meals to all students.
1: We're talking with uh, Emily Ledyard, uh, who is the uh, advocacy coordinator for Feeding New York. And this week they held a press conference, um, urging the governor, state lawmakers, to expand school meals, universal school meals for everybody. So, so Emily, maybe can you walk us through what what is the actual proposal that you're hoping the legislature and the governor adopt?
6: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first off, thank you for having me. I'll also uh, just clarify that the the coalition is the Healthy School Meals for All um, New York Kids Coalition that that put on the press conference. But we were there as a a partner. Um, But in terms of the the ask for the legislator, we're looking for New York State to close the gap. So um, in the fiscal year 2024 state budget, New York State invested one hundred and thirty four point six million dollars to expand free school meals. Um, through the federal community eligibility Pro- provision, the CEP expansion, um, but that only covers eighty-eight percent of New York State students. We're looking to cover the rest. So, for the gap, for the to close the gap, um, it'll be an estimated uh, ninety point four million dollars that we're asking to cover the rest of the students.
1: And I assume that uh, actually, the federal government picks up a significant portion of this. The state is making a contribution. The feds are making a contribution.
6: Yeah, that that is correct. So the um, the federal community eligibility uh, provision, the CEP, there's a new uh, CEP state subsidy. That's uh, that's where the 130.4.6 million is going to. Um, and then we're looking to add additional money to that that state subsidy as well.
1: So, so my understanding, the prison rule is if uh, you're in a school district and suddenly 25% of the students are uh, eligible for Um, school meals, and they can basically give school meals to everybody. And you're trying to expand that or take advantage of that?
6: Yeah, yeah, that's correct. That 25% threshold is really crucial. There's a lot of schools where they're at 24%. So they have students that are eligible, for example, the three over 320,000 students across the state are eligible for this program, but because their school doesn't hit the 25% limit, they're unable to receive uh, free school meals
1: and i understand there's about 650 schools statewide that fall into that criteria
6: yes yeah that's correct yeah it's it's crucial i mean one in six new york kids face hunger so these these school meals are really crucial and and important for their success
1: um so how has the governor you know responded to this and is the concern just the money that's involved or seems like a no-brainer especially if you're concerned about in and hunger among children which. Most people tell you, of course, we want to end hunger among children.
6: Right, right, absolutely. I think the money is the the largest issue here. Um, the The Department of Budget right now is is really going through the ringer trying to um, to manage the budget, and so uh, asking for an increase is difficult. But we think that this fight is worth it, and that there's enough support uh, both from uh, organizations from uh, voters. of New York voters support state funding for free school meals. And we have over 285 plus organizations uh, that are part of this coalition working towards this fight.
1: When you talk about school meals, you include both breakfast and lunch?
6: Yes, that's correct. Hmm.
1: And, you know, what's the, uh, how do the students like these breakfasts, by the way? And are they good nutritionally these days?
6: Yeah. I mean, as someone who, uh, participated in the program throughout the entirety of my K through 12 education. Yeah. I mean, they, they're good food, you know, it, I know it's not perfect, but, um, you know, it's good food The you it's USDA qualified food. It, it's, it has gone through regulations and, and standards, nutritional standards. Um, so it's good quality food. Um, and additionally, what, what we're hoping to do, um, by passing this is that it builds capacity for farm to school programs. So we're getting more um, nutritional food, locally grown food into into schools as well.
1: And how do teachers and, and a teachers union like uh, NISA, do the teachers come out in favor of this? Are they helping with the effort?
6: Yeah, absolutely. They were. Uh, they were actually at the press conference on January 29th. Uh, they were a huge supporter, and and it's really great to have them uh, part of the coalition.
1: Um, has, has other states done this? Would New York be the first or are the other states already doing this?
6: So there's eight other states doing it currently, uh, a couple in the northeast, um, couple, a couple out in the west, um, all over the place. We're really an outlier uh, here. We've we, we got to get this past. There's eight states already.
1: Now, some, most of the listeners not, you know, I did anti-hunger work. You know, for a long time, and you know, I know one problems in the schools where students had to individually apply to get certified to receive school free school lunch and school meal. Uh, you know, there was often a stigma, especially as you got into the older grades. You didn't want to be identified as the as the poor kid, or you know, for the schools, the 650, they still you know require students to fill out their individual applications. You know, is there a difference between participation rates based on age and are a lot of students still not applying even though they're eligible?
6: Yes. Yeah. So some students are, are not applying because of that stigma. That stigma is really, really crucial. And some students will apply and, and receive free lunch but not eat breakfast. I was one of those kids uh, because breakfast is one of those meals that um, – most students eat at home so if you received free breakfast it was noticeable and and you would be targeted for bullying more frequently so yeah the stigma is really crucial in um preventing people from applying and also preventing students from receiving the benefits as well
1: so has any of the legislative leaders yet committed to make sure it's in the budget like uh, uh, senate uh, majority leader or the assembly speaker
6: um, I'm I'm not entirely sure, to be honest with you, on on their confirmed support, um, but we do have support both in the assembly and the senate on this. And uh, last, um, the fiscal year 2024 um, state budget included that 134.6 million dollars because of our coalition and because of large support in the legislature. So we th- we think we have the support to get it done this year. We just have to keep pushing
1: i admit i was impressed when i heard that dollar figure last year and you got it passed it showed you know there's an awful lot of um, um su- support for this and people want to find out you know more about the program maybe when they have some kids who might be eligible or you know if they want to you know contact their legislator and say it one way or the other way they think this is a good idea how can they get that type of information
6: yeah th- good question so that information will be found Um, On the state website, you can look up your um, senator or assembly member. Uh, And also, if you're interested in learning more about the Healthy School Meals for All Coalition, it's just Healthy School Meals for All. Um, And additionally, Feeding New York State, uh, we also have some good information as well.
1: Now, you may have done this earlier in the interview, but, you know, what are some of the positive impacts that students and schools see when, in fact, you're having, you know, universal school meals, you know? better class attendance, kids paying attention more, not falling asleep?
6: Yeah, there are a ton of benefits. So uh, I'll name as many as I can as quickly as I can. Um, It improves academic outcomes. Um, There's studies that show that it boosts test scores, cognitive function, academic achievement, and school attendance. There's support for students' mental health, uh, reducing anxiety and depression. It provides healthy healthy nutrition, um, providing nutrition that otherwise wouldn't be accessible in food deserts. Um, additionally, for the grocery bill, for families, it saves $150 per month per child. So this is important for all families, uh, all children everywhere. It's crucial for their ability to succeed in the classroom. It's crucial for their ability to develop um, a healthy relationship with food. And it's crucial for all of our children's New York voters believe so. 285 plus organizations believe so. The legislature believes so. It's time to get it done.
1: So a little bit over a minute less, I was going to ask a throwaway and in the interview question, you know, what haven't I asked I need to share? Um, but also you did point out this part of a broader coalition on the school meals, but are there other things that Feed uh, in New York is particularly hoping to see happen this year?
6: Yeah, one of the crucial things we're looking for is to increase the SNAP minimum benefit. So currently the, the minimum benefit for SNAP, you're never going to believe this, it's $23 a month. That's not going to get you anything. That, that can't even cover a week of groceries. So we're trying to increase that. New Jersey, we, we saw um, in 2024, they increased it to $95 a month. We're hoping to increase it to $100 a month. So that's one of the, one, that's one of the larger things. We're also looking to get uh, funding for some anti-hunger programs, HipNap, Nourish New York. Um, we're, we're looking to do everything we can to support New Yorkers.
1: Well, thank you very much. We've been talking to Emily Lidgert uh, with the uh... Other things, uh, Feed in New York, and this has been Mark Tunley for the Hudson Mohawk magazine. So for those of you trying to keep score at home, <clears throat> Hunger-Free New York is the group that represents the food banks. And we've had on the Alliance for a Hunger-Free New York. They're the group that represents the food pantries and soup kitchens. Uh, we've had Emily on a couple times now over the years. I'm, I'm very impressed. She's a full-time student, going to graduate hopefully in the spring. And yes, she's the advocacy coordinator for this group. Uh, And we, of course, will be keeping you up to date as to how the hunger issue is progressing in the state legislature this year.
0: Thanks again, Mark, for your wonderful reporting. Up next, Bria Barthel talks with the head of Catholic Charities of the Diocese of Albany, Sister Betsy Van Dusen who provides an overview of some of the 85 programs the Diocese offers in 14 counties.
7: This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. These
0: are hard
7: times for many people. One of the major organizations in the area that provides services for people in need is Catholic Charities of the Diocese of Albany. So I want to talk today with Sister Betsy Van Dusen of Catholic charities, and find out sort of what they're about, what they do, how people can contact them. So, Sister Betsy, I've talked to you in the past at one of the food drives. Welcome back to Hudson yes, Mohawk Magazine. Yes, thank you, Magazine.
8: thank you, Brea. It's so great to be back. I was spending time in uh, parking lots before my becoming chief executive officer of Catholic Charities, and it's uh, it's such a privilege to sit in a different seat, but be able to be so involved in the work that's happening. For us, it's fourteen counties. We cover 10,000 square miles. Um, 14
7: counties and 10,000 square miles. Correct. You don't correct. get to sit in that seat very often, do you?
8: <laughs> no, indeed, not too much. And that's the important part, really, is to be able to be out supporting our team all over the, the diocese. We have 85 programs, um, all different kinds of programs. Um, Here in the Capital Region, we have... Care coordination services, which works with folks who have substance use disorder issues. We have community maternity services, with, which works with pregnant and parenting teens. We have our housing office, so we have a number of single room occupancy residences and apartments that are at market rate and below. We have our Tri County services, which operates five food pantries, two soup kitchens. The VITA tax program, which is just starting up now, so if you or someone you know has to file taxes, oh wait, that's most people, right? And if you make (laughs) $60,000 or less, you are eligible to have your taxes done by the VITA program. You can call our office number, 518-453-6650, and they can connect you to how to apply to get an appointment to have your taxes done. That number is just for the tax program, or is that the general number? That's our general number. So if you have an issue okay. or question with Catholic Charities, that's the perfect number to call. And Sue Ellen Cofer, who's our receptionist, will get you to the right place.
7: Now, I've heard some people say in the past, not recently, they're reluctant to go to Catholic Charities. They don't want to be pressured to be, to be to convert.
8: They don't want to be pressured to go to services. Is any of that still an issue? Um, never, And it's never been an issue. So we, um, we're called Catholic Charities because we're part of a network all across the country. There's 168 dioceses and there's 168 Catholic Charities across the country. We're Catholic. Nobody else needs to be Catholic. <laughs> Our staff is not all Catholic. Our staff comes from all faith traditions and no faith traditions. And anybody who walks in the door is never asked, what do you believe? What don't you believe? None of those things are part of the work that we do. We do believe in people, though, and in their goodness and in their ability. When they come to get assistance, with our, we believe in the goodness of our staff and our donors and our volunteers and our boards. So our believing in people is why we do what we do. We just happen to be connected to the Catholic community in a, in a, in a bigger way, which is just just the structure thing. So you don't get funding through the diocese itself? We do not, actually. We used to be part of the Bishop's Appeal, and we are no longer.
7: So it's a freestanding 501c3. Absolutely. So if the diocese follows through with its uh, proposed bankruptcy, that doesn't affect you at all?
8: Please, God, it does not.
7: Great. Now, with all of those programs going on, you probably are seeing firsthand the rise in need. Tell us something about like where things stand at this point in the community as a whole.
8: Certainly. So we work with little ones at Sunnyside Child Development Center, and we work with seniors in many um, parts of the diocese in Schenectady and Otsego and um, Columbia counties. And we are seeing even with seniors, with little kids, with parents, with single people, married people, um, food is a huge issue. Typically, food pantries are one time a month. And what we're seeing is people needing to return because they simply cannot make ends meet. I know that in my early, early in my career, when I was working in a food pantry, the idea was that a food pantry would get you by the last few days of the month. And at this point, most people, as we calculate it, we figured that food stamps take most people, most families about 16 days. And then you can go to a food pantry, which would get you food for three to five days. And by my math that only gets you to day 21. And so that's a lot about why people are struggling is that we simply the systems are not situated for for people to be able to make it in that way. And we find so many people who are employed, whether full time, part time, both husband and wife are working full time, they simply can't make ends meet. And so some of our pantries are open in evening hours and at off time so that people who are employed can come into the food pantries to be able to get assistance. It's um it's very challenging and and as I said, I was before we started, I was in conversation with the regional food bank to say we need to work together to to see if we can't find better ways to get more food out to people. We need some additional assistance for people. Um, because there there really isn't enough. And in this country, to have people go be hungry just is, doesn't make sense. And so how do we together, as a broader community, come together and say, yes, we need to have earned income tax credit. We need to have child tax credits. We need to have food stamps that really catch up with the, the cost of living and be able to help people make it. We're at some place
7: that something like 20 or 25% of the american population is food insecure.
8: Yes. And what food insecure means is that they don't know today if they can put three meals of meals on the table. That's really what that means is that I'm not sure where my next meal is going to come from. And imagine having to do that every day. Imagine like opening your cupboard and not having anything there and then wondering am I going to get to eat today? And for your children, am I going to be able to feed my children today? And I think it ties to it's sort of a bigger, to me, it's it's part of a bigger cycle. And the cycle really is desperate people do desperate things. Obviously, I'm not a mom, but I can imagine if I were a mom, I would probably do almost anything I needed to, to be able to feed my children. And I think sometimes some of what we see is some of that is people just trying to figure out how to do what they can to take care of their kids. We're at a place in our world that people don't feel like there are resources available to them, that they they have to make choices that they would probably consider not good choices.
7: Speaking of kids, you had mentioned in passing Sunnyside Child Development Center right in North Central Troy, and they have an important anniversary coming up. So they let's do. shift gears
8: a little bit and
7: hear about that.
8: Yes. So Sunnyside has been on a hill up up on the hill in north-central Troy. 2025 will be their 100th anniversary. They have taken care of children on that location all of those years. It was originally started with a religious order. And then over the years, it became part of Catholic Charities of the Diocese of Albany, part of our Tri-County Services Agency. So we have a daycare center there. So we take care of children from six months to five years. And then we have an after-school program, uh, about 40 kids right now with a waiting list. And then we have a summer program and the great part about the summer program is there's a swimming pool there. There's not a lot of um, those kind of things. There's not another pool. And so we have about 80 kids in our summer program and they are there all day and they come and they have, they work in groups and they do reading time and they do activities and they play and they run and they, our kids are really able to be kids. And as you know, living in a tough neighborhood and, um, In a world that's very, when you turn on the television, it's lots of violent things to be able to have a place, a very special oasis where kids can be kids and they get to play basketball and play dodgeball and things that kids love to do and just run, 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 run. How can people help? Think good thoughts for the little kids in North Central Troy. If you'd like to make a donation, we'd be so happy to do that. Because one of the truths is that funding is always a struggle for programs We can't um, hire staff at the rate at which we get reimbursed. We love to have groups come out in the summer, um, also in the spring to help get the campus ready, to have a group of people that would love to come out and rake leaves or cut lawns or trim things or paint.
7: And you mentioned a board of directors so people can volunteer in that way. Each of the programs, it sounds like, can always use volunteers. Where to go for more information, whether you need services or can volunteer to help with services? Our
8: website is www.ccrcda.org.
7: A pop quiz in the last moment. What are the 14 counties?
8: I can do it. Herkimer, Fulton, Montgomery, Delaware, Otsego, Schoharie, Columbia, Green, Saratoga, Warren, Washington, Rensselaer, Schenectady, and Albany.
7: I'm very impressed. Thank you so much. This is, uh, again, Sister Betsy Van Dusen, CEO of the Catholic Charities for the Albany Diocese. Sister Betsy, thanks so much. Thank you, Bria. And this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine.
1: So as a senior citizen on this show tonight, um, when I grew up, food pantries and soup kitchens largely did not exist. Uh, which is what I think many younger people do not realize. Uh, most of them began after the 1980 budget cuts on the Ronald Reagan, where um, funding for housing affordability uh, was slashed. Uh, and An assembly ran an anti-hunger program for 30 years. Food pantries and soup kitchens are not the solution to hunger. Uh, I would just throw out things like a guaranteed basic income uh, and also actually making Work pay. Now, with Sister Betsy Van Dusen, if you want to contact uh, Catholic Charities, I believe their phone number is 518 453 6650.
0: We're going to close out our show with part two of Marsha Lazarus with Rabbi Deborah Gordon Troy as they talk about the challenges of being a rabbi in these times, including Rabbi Troy's views on the Middle East.
9: L'cha l'cha dodi, l'ikrat l'ikrat ka'ala, p'nei p'nei Shabbat ne'kabala. L'cha l'cha dodi, l'ikrat
10: l'ikrat This is Marcia Lazarus sitting with Rabbi Deborah Gordon, also known as Reb Deb, of Barit Shalom Synagogue in Troy, New York. I hear so much joy in your singing, Reb Deb, and desire to connect with others, with those in your congregation and others, and yet I can imagine that being a rabbi in these times can be challenging. I read in a recent Washington Post article that our country is more polarized than ever and the rhetoric more inflammatory than ever before. We see this in the current Middle East conflict, and we recently passed International Holocaust Remembrance Day, a day which remembers the killing of six million Jews and millions of others, including gays, people with mental and physical disabilities, Gypsies, those seen as the other. Rebdeb is fearing the other a natural human inclination? Or does it have to be fostered, incited?
9: Jewish tradition teaches that we are innately formed with the ability to make choices. That's our human superpower. One can foster and incite fear and hatred and find really fertile ground for it because it is a human emotion and way of being. Um, But one can also foster compassion and generosity and connection when people are afraid. It's easier to focus their fear into hate and anger, right? Germany, their embrace of the Nazi party didn't come out of nowhere between World War I and World War II. Inflation was insane in Germany. The economic situation was awful. In fact, what you find if you look around the world and through history is that in times and places of economic prosperity and stability, generally the Jewish community prospered. And if you see Jews leaving a place in large numbers and going somewhere else, you're probably seeing a place where the economy is shrinking, where social unrest and possibly military unrest is rising. And Jews who for you know, most of the last 2000 years were literally citizens of nowhere, were not citizens of the countries they lived in, even if they had been there for generations, sometimes it's time to get out. So there's there's definitely a connection between what's going on in terms of social and economic stability or upheaval and people's susceptibility to fear. And you gotta ask who, who benefits, right? Who stays in power because they unite their followers against someone who gets wealthy feeding off of behavior that that is driven by fear. I mean, we can see this in politics in the United States. We can see this in politics in Israel. I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu seems to have as his highest priority staying in power. And there doesn't seem to be a whole lot that he won't do to do that one of the things that I have been doing over and over and over since October 7th is reminding myself and other people that generational trauma is real. I mean, what we've learned in the last 20 or 30 years about the genetic passing down of trauma from generation to generation, it's underlying every single person who is living between, you know, Don and 'er Beersheba, the north and the south, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, right? Jews have experienced generational trauma. Palestinians have experienced generational trauma. People who are in the grip of trauma are likely to see things in black and white, yes and no, binary, us and them. And it can be very, very hard when you're feeling so scared and so hurt and so angry to open yourself up to the possibility that someone else on the quote unquote other side is feeling just as scared and hurt and angry
10: Riv dip whichever of my jewish friends i speak to whatever congregation they're a part of here in albany down in brooklyn they all say within their synagogues, progressive, conservative, there is such a range of response and feelings mm-hmm. about this war. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you see it, at Shalom, I'm guessing. Yes. And that must be such a tightrope for you to walk because you're the rabbi of the of all the congregants with all their Diverse perspectives. How do you do it?
9: (laughs) One step at a time.
10: I see your hair has gotten grayer.
9: (laughs) Undoubtedly. And by being, by by listening, by being willing to be wrong, by being willing to um, do something different than I did before. Some years ago, 8 or 10 years ago our local Jewish federation brought in a consultant to do a workshop to help Jews talk to Jews about Israel and Palestine across you know from from many different perspectives and there were two takeaways that have really strengthened my ability both to to be the rabbi everybody's rabbi as best I can and also to to be open to the other and to people whose perspectives are different than mine. So one was the opening exercise. He put us in triplets and asked us to share two or three memories that were formative for us in how we think about Israel. And I happened to be in a group with someone that I liked and respected very much, but we had very different perspectives. And after we each heard the stories that influenced, that influenced our perspectives and helped define our understandings, we understood each other so much better. We still don't agree, but we know where the other one is coming from and why they're coming from it. And the second takeaway from this workshop was there is sociological research that supports the idea that when you listen to someone to understand where they're coming from, rather than to refute them or argue with them or try and get them to agree with you, they are more likely to be able to listen to you after that. There are people, there are Israelis and Palestinians working together. There are Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs working together. One of my favorite organizations, which grows out of grief, is the parents circle, bereaved families for peace, bereaved Palestinian and Israeli families for peace. Everybody has lost someone to the violence, and they believe in understanding the other as the only road forward forward to prevent more people from losing loved ones to the violence. One of their films is called A Two-Sided Story. And at the end of February, there will be two speakers in the capital district from the group called Roots, in Hebrew, Shorashim, in Arabic, Judur. This is a group of Orthodox Israeli Jewish settlers in the West Bank, and Palestinian activists in the West Bank. Some of whom have been in Israeli jails for violent crimes since twenty fourteen this group has been working on understanding and connecting to the other and doing education and listening to each other and finding a mutual path forward and I say if the two if if those two groups can do it, there's no excuse for the rest of us. They have looked at what is it that makes it possible for them to make these connections and work together and believe in a shared future. And one of the biggest answers is acknowledging each other's stories, that two-sided story. I think that that capacity to hold multiple perspectives is one that can be cultivated in human beings.
1: And now is part two of Marcia Lazarus interview with Rabbi Deborah Gordon of Barbara's Shalom Synagogue in Troy. You can find MediaCentury.org for the first part.
0: And that's our show. We hope you've done you, we we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk magazine. I'm Alexis Goldsmith.
1: And I'm Mark Dunley. Engineer was uh, Joan Eason. want to thank all the volunteers, uh, Marshall Lazarus and Brea Barthel for tonight's show.
0: And we want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send an email to HMM at Mediasanctuary.org. Be sure to tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream us on Radio, Sa- uh, stream Radio Sanctuary at Mediasanctuary.org. Until next time.